0: Good afternoon. Uh, If I haven't got to meet you, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at The Trails. Uh, And today uh, we are opening up the book of Ephesians. We started the book of Ephesians last week by looking at the first two verses, which is not a lot, but we actually looked at all of Acts chapter 19 as well to see how this church in Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, how that church was actually planted, how it was started and some of the crazy things uh, that happened there. In fact, on the way here today, Owen, uh, my son was talking to my other son, Theo and said, do you know what happened last week in church? There was this man and he was crazy. Uh, And uh, so it it was a great story. So if you haven't you should read Acts 19. It'll, it'll help you understand that a little bit more. Um, but uh, we, we today actually are walking through a, a section of scripture that is really just one praise after another. In fact, the whole section is just praise be to God for all that he has done, specifically in working together our salvation, which is why I have named this sermon God's Wonderful Work, because what we're seeing is God's work of salvation. Now, usually when I'm preaching, I try to have lots of slides with words and scriptures and things on the screens that did not happen today. So we're going old school analog. So if you have a Bible, you can open up with us uh, or on your, your app on your phone. Uh, we're going to be camping out there in Ephesians chapter one, specifically looking at verses three to 14. And that is a lot of text for me. Uh, and it is one of the most beautiful doxologies, praises that we have in the Bible. Some theologians have called it a golden chain. Some have called it a a snowball that as it heads down the mountain from verses three to verse 14, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and picks up speed and then just whacks you over. Some people have called it just a lots of things. And it is one of these most beautiful praises of Paul written to God. Now, Paul usually writes letters and he starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Uh, And then he writes who is to, to the saints who are in Ephesus or Philip. Pie, Colossae, or somewhere like that, and it's grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he moves right into a prayer that he has for them, but here in Ephesians, he doesn't get to the prayer. We'll, we'll cover the prayer next week when we get to verse 15, as you see, if you, if you look in your Bible, it says thanksgiving and prayer, but right here, he dives into this huge praise to God. It's like he starts thinking about all that God did in and through uh, him and then through the saints there in Ephesus, and all he can do is just Praise God, as a result of everything that they had happened there. Now, if you remember in Ephesus, there are two big groups that make up this church. Uh, There are the Jewish people and the Gentile people. Uh, And one of the biggest issues actually in the early church was not uh, this huge, perplexing, difficult problem of not having church buildings. And it was not this big, huge, perplexing, difficult problem of persecution. Rather, the great, big problem that we see as we're reading through the book of Acts and looking and studying the early church is what do we do with these Gentiles who are believing upon Jesus? Because they come from worshiping like Artemis of the Ephesians, these, these pagan gods, these demons, and now they are in Christ, and now they're being brought into these local churches and united together with these nice, clean, form-fitted Jews who have the law of God and the covenants of God. Abraham is their forefather. David was their king. And things got a little messy of like, what in the world is happening? How do we relate to one another? Now, if you're newer to the Bible, you might not immediately see any kind of perplexing problem with that. You're like, that seems strange. Why are those people racist? They're not like everybody else. What's the deal? And it's not that they were racist. Instead, they're trying to figure out how do they, as the people of God, who have the promises of God and the covenants of God, how do they intermix all of these people from these radically different backgrounds of them into being the manifold wisdom of God put on display so that the world might see them and, and see the gospel on display in their relationships. So if you're newer, I guess, to the Bible, uh, the Jews are those people that if you read through the Old Testament, we see that uh, there there are these people that are chosen by God. We see that God looked, for example, in Genesis chapter six, that God looked upon Noah with grace in his eyes. And and there's this this holy lineage that God traces all the way through from the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter three or so, all the way to Noah. And then from Noah, it keeps going generationally to Abraham. And God chooses Abraham Abraham to be his man. He shows up to Abraham one day, who's not worshiping God. He's worshiping the host of heaven. And he looks at him and says, you are my man. I am your God. Hello. And follow me, and I will bless you. And Abraham says, okay. Uh, and, And then that's how the story goes. And then actually in Genesis chapter 15 is actually when Abraham believes in the promises of God. And by his faith, he is counted as righteous before the Lord. So he follows him, for like three chapters, not even some a man who is declared righteous before. God just God just shows up and says, follow me. He says, okay. Uh, so he does. And so that what produces this, I will follow you, is the very work of God of coming, choosing him, calling him to himself. And we see this goes through the family lineage from Abraham into Isaac, into Jacob, this lineage of faith. And then in and Jacob, what we see is it explodes into 12 men that the promise of God goes in it through these men who become the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. So it goes from people into a nation. And when we walk through the book of Exodus for the better part of a year, uh, last year, remember that? That was wild. The vocabulary that we saw over and over and over and over again in there is that they are a chosen people. You remember that? You remember how often that came out? God looks at them and says, I chose you. Remember we we saw like with them in in, uh, the Egyptian slavery, it's not that God came to them and said, hey, I'm gonna give you a bunch of rules. You keep those. Eh, Maybe I'll be kind to you and get you out of slavery. No, God, God shows up on the scene to Moses and says, Moses, you're my mouthpiece, go. Moses says, okay. Moses shows up on the scenes. Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God doubles down, lots of judgments, doesn't care, doesn't care what Pharaoh thinks, he liberates his people. And over and over and over again, we see that they are his special, holy, chosen people. And then the whole second half of the book was they now have to learn how to become who they are as God's people. They get the law, this is how you are to now live as God's people. God doesn't crowdsource that. Remember, he doesn't say, what do you think we should do? No, God says, this is what you're doing. They say, okay, and if not, I'll kill you, all right. And then God gives them the rules of the tabernacle, This is how you are to worship me. I don't want to worship you like that. I don't care. And God kills some of them to show them that that's true. They try to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. Boom, they die. God's very serious about how he is worshiped. And he's very serious about the people that he calls himself and chooses as his people will be a holy people. The Old Testament, y'all, is awesome. If you ever heard anyone read through the Old Testament, they're like, it's kind of boring. That person has not read the Old Testament. It is wild and Beautiful. So over and over again, we see this this special chosen people that God set his love and affection on. In fact, if you wanna look over, I know this is not Ephesians, but if you wanna look over with me very quickly, you can, or I can just read it to you and you can just trust that I'm not lying to you. But Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six to eight. Deuteronomy chapter seven, big bold number seven, verses small number six to eight. God explains the nation of Israel. This is what he says about them. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord. Then Moses looks at them and he reminds them, he says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He chose them. He chose them to be holy, it says. It goes on to say, it was not because you were more in number than anyone else that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it's because the Lord Loves you. Isn't that fascinating? God looks at Israel. It's not because you're super religious. It's not because you're very great. In fact, you will rebel against me a whole lot, and things will go very poorly for you. It's not based on your performance. Rather, he says, I chose you. I set my love on you. And all of this happened because the Lord loves them and is keeping the oath that he swore to their fathers. We see in verse 8. This is the kind of vocabulary that just permeates the whole Old Testament. But we can't get too far away from God's promises to Israel to hear that they are those who God has set his love upon. They are his special chosen holy people, distinct from everyone else on the face of the planet. He chose them to be his people. Through them, God's purposes would unfold throughout all of human history. They are his elect. They are his chosen people. They are the ones whom he has set his love upon. You're like, all right, well, then who are the Gentiles? They are everybody else. They're everybody else. They were as far away as you could get from God. As close as Israel was to be to God, they were as far away as you could possibly be. And they were worshiping false gods, idols, counterfeit gods. And as we see the gospel go forth in the early church from Gentile nations, from Jerusalem into Gentile nations, and all these Gentiles keep coming in. The, now we understand a little bit more like, why are these Jews so worried about what do we do and how do we add these people in? It's because their whole life they've been conditioned and trained and know from treating God's word that they are God's chosen people and they are holy. But the Gentiles were not holy. So the question is, what do you do with all these Gentile converts? How are they now the chosen people of God? That doesn't make any sense. How, how do we join together in a local church with people who aren't the chosen people of God like us and how do we demonstrate our new identity not as Jews and Gentiles but as Christians and are they chosen by God? Like I know we are, we're Jews, but them? I don't know. And it was during this early time when we began to really understand the plans and purposes of God that he has planned to unite all things in Jesus, that this special status of being God's chosen people is no longer in the new covenant, predominantly applied based off of bloodlines and lineages. Rather, we see that the chosen people of God are made known to one another as they hear Jesus' voice, the voice of the shepherd, and follow him. That's how we know who Jesus' sheep are, his chosen people. They're not from a certain family, they're composed of anyone who hears the gospel, believes upon Jesus, and repents of their sin. They, they, they are those who look at their profession of faith and the transformed life and we acknowledge the miracle of God has taken place in their life and Then we confidently look at them and tell them, oh, I guess you, you are now the chosen people of God. Praise God, welcome. And, and this is what began to happen. This is why we had the Jerusalem Council, by the way, in Acts chapter 15, all these Jews wondering, what do we do with these Gentiles? And I know this probably isn't too crazy for us to understand because of where we're at just in human history, but we have to understand that this would have been an incredibly radical shift for the Jews to get used to. Like, what about their privileged status? I mean, their entire lives, they've been taught that they are the special chosen holy people of God with the promises and the covenants. Gentiles are those dirty people who are not chosen, who are unholy and blameworthy. They don't have promises. They don't have covenants like us. Yet now in Jesus, God begins to draw men and women to himself by the work of God the Spirit from these Gentile nations and by their faith Through grace, they are united into Christ and placed in the local churches with these Jews, meaning they share the same status now as God's holy chosen people, whom he adopted and brought into his family according to his plans and purposes, which he set forth in Christ from before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glory. And that's what is in Paul's mind as he begins to craft these little verses that are just like jam-packed with goodness. It's, it's these thoughts that are swirling around in his mind that just burst out from the beginning of this letter as he's praising God for the great kindness of God and making his will known throughout the ages, but now revealed in the new covenant, which is set forth in Jesus. And so for our time together, we are gonna go line by line through these opening 12 verses, verses three to 14, to see how Paul praises God over and over and over again for what he's done in the lives of the Ephesians and in effect in the lives of all Christians. If you're a Christian, there is very good news for you in what we're reading today. Because you who once a Gentile from birth and by nature, if you are in Christ, you are now part of the chosen people of God, which is a place that you don't deserve, nor do you earn, nor do you come from the right family. if, If you're a Christian, the fact that you love Jesus is a miracle of God. This is an absolute miracle. And that, that's, what, that's what Paul's big aim is. It isn't that we, that we read through these next kind of verses and just kind of examine them and study them and go, well, oh, I don't know about that right there. No, it's, it's that we see them and, and our jaw hits the floor and we say, praise God for your kindness to someone like me. Because I don't deserve any of what you're doing. And it's very Good. So that's why I tell this sermon, God's wonderful work, because what we see is Paul just praise God over and over and over again of how he has saved these men and women. And as we see what he says, what we're going to catch is a little bit of the vision of how Paul views God. And it is a high view of God, high praise of God. And what this does in Paul's life is not just mediocre or non-important. What it does is it fuels death-defying missions. The things that he believes to be true, he puts into practice, going to places where it's incredibly dangerous and people are trying to murder him because he keeps going into new locations and saying, Jesus alone is God and he's the only king. People say, you can't say that. I don't care, it's true. And then as he shares it, people are like, I think, I think you might be right. And then they become Christians, and he plants a church. Then he goes to another town, and they try to kill him there too. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Not only that, but these truths are written down and sent to the Ephesians that they might understand the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world, that they might see that their salvation as Gentiles is not an afterthought. They are not God's plan B. It's not like, well, Israel was kind of plan A. They kind of didn't do very well. So uh, we got plan B action now. That's what we're doing. We're on plan B. Uh, and if it was that way, uh, we'd be planning on like 18 bajillion at this moment. You know what I mean? Instead, what we see is that their salvation is God's determination. God is the one whose purpose to save them. He's the one who ordained their salvation. And so they can be confident that when they heard the gospel and were given grace to believe it, that God really did seal them by his promised Holy Spirit and let them know that they can never lose what they did not earn. See, and these are the truths that would sustain the Ephesians as they walk through suffering on account of the word. As those, those, remember those silversmiths that loved Artemis of the Ephesians? As they actually came after these Christians, there's this There's great comfort and joy they have in the gospel that it's rock-solid hope that they have been united by faith in Christ and with one another. That is unshakable. So, So let's begin to dive in and see Paul's praise of God for his wonderful work. Let's look at verse three. Verse three says, blessed be or praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have long to pause here, but this phrase is just beautiful. It talks about the unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. And so what we know is God the Father as our Father, and we only know him as that because of Jesus and the work of Jesus, which we're gonna see in a moment. So Paul starts his prayer of praise, and specifically he does so by thanking God the Father for his activity extended to us in Christ for what he has done. And he begins praising God the Father for blessing us in Christ in Jesus, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, now the first thing I want to draw our attention to is the word "us." if you're a writer in your Bible, an underliner, if you just go through verses three and fourteen, even while I 'm talking and just make little circles around every single time you see the word "us won't you, won't you, won't you ask the most natural question would be, well, who is us? If all these things are happening to us, who who is us it's, I don't know if grammatically if that's a great sentence, but Who who is us? And and if we look back at verse one, we see the answer to the question. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the us that Paul will keep referring to in this section as he's praising God is the us. The us are the faithful saints that we talked about last week. Those who are actively believing and trusting in the gospel, those who have been convicted of their sin as they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they believed upon Jesus as they turned their backs on those counterfeit gods and repented of their sins. So the faithful saints, that's the us who is in here. But notice also as well that this word us is the one used. Meaning Paul isn't using the second person plural y'all. It's one of my favorite words being a Texan. He's not using the word y'all, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't look at them and say, blessed be God the Father who, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed y'all. Eh, you guys. N- no, no. He actually uses the first person plural, us. Thus Paul lops himself in with the Ephesians because what we'll see is that what he praises God for is the same thing that all Christians ought to praise God for because this is how all of us have been saved by God in this wonderful work that he's done. So blessed be God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not just a small note here, but notice that this verse doesn't say that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every physical blessing. Blessing in the earthly places. Say that. He's blessed us with every physical blessing in the earthly places. Does your Bible say that? If so, throw that Bible away. That's not what it says. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I say that because there are a lot of TV preachers and preachers in this city who get that wrong. Incredibly wrong. See, because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So although we might experience seasons and times of health and prosperity in our lives, these are not the guarantee that Christians hold on to to know that we are loved by God. There are millions of Christians living in abject poverty today whose children will die from starvation and from the common cold and from something as small as diarrhea. And this isn't the result of their faithlessness in the gospel, we, we are not guaranteed health and wealth and prosperity in this life. If you have it, praise the Lord. By the way, all of us do because we live in Canada. So most of the world is not like this, right? Most of the world is not like this. It's drastically different. When people run around saying, oh yeah, we have every spiritual blessing in the earthly pla- or every physical blessing in the earthly places, what they do is they set people up to believe and tie together their faithfulness with God's blessing and provision and health. So if you're not experiencing God's blessing and provision and health, you're probably not being faithful enough. So just have more faith and be better and try harder. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just do better. Friend, that is not the gospel. That is a sneaky snake oil salesman. And that will lead you straight to hell. See, Friends, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is of a different kingdom. And, 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 and I think my problem with them is not that they have this big view of how great and kind God is. They have a tiny little view of him. It's just, it's just this tiny little view of him. As if, as if all of what it means to follow God means we just have for 20 to 30 years some health and some money in the bank. That's God's big plan. Friends, friends, their view is much, much, much too small. And the view that the Bible has is much greater and deeper and wider and actually produces hope and confidence in our lives. See, in Jesus' kingdom, our eyes are taken off the physical blessings in the here and now, and our confidence and hope are not placed in physical things, but rather in the promises of God and specifically in our union with Christ. We We see this phrase, in the heavenly places, this, this phrase actually is used in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Uh, look with me, if you want to. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7. Yeah, 5, 6, and 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead in our trespasses. We're dead, we're not alive, we're dead. He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's go back, verse 3. He's bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I Meaning, there is this beautiful way where, right now, you, as a Christian in a spiritual sense, are seated in Christ. Your salvation is secure, and your hope is secure. It's not based on your faithfulness. It is not based on your health. It's not based on your bank account. Your steadfast, sure hope and your anchor in the midst of life storms is found in the fact that right now you are by faith and through grace in Christ. We're not to look at our life here and and use this as the barometer of how faithful we are being unto the Lord. No, my friend. So my problem with TV preachers is, is that. They exchange the covenant and hope that we actually have in spiritual blessings of being united to Christ by faith, and they cheapen it by casting our eyes to look on the things of this world and call them blessings, when there are far greater blessings that should fuel our devotion and praise to God. In fact, everything that we see here is just blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing of God, and this is usually not what the TV preacher means when they talk about God's blessings, but every single one of them are blessings. And when we walk through the brokenness of this world as Christians when we lose houses, when we walk through financial loss or poverty, when we walk through miscarriages and the death of a spouse and cancer and MS and loneliness and seasons of darkness and anxiety and despair, we don't need to fall into the trap of Satan to look to earthly, tangible blessings to see if we are being faithful to God. Because health, wealth, and prosperity are no barometer to that. They're no barometer to see if we're living a victorious Christian life. No, we look to the cross of Jesus as our only hope in life and death and know that we are loved by God. And then we remember that Jesus is our only hope in life and death and that we are loved by God and God's promises by grace and through faith that we're seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And there is no greater blessing than that. There is no greater blessing for you than to know right now your salvation is secure and you cannot lose it and you're safe in Christ. Though we may lose everything, we cannot lose Christ. Though we may have fears that the government may take your home or, or the stock market's crashing, like, what's happening? There, there is no place in this world to find comfort and hope and joy and satisfaction other than in the gospel, my friends. There is nothing so secure as that. Which brings us to verse four. Paul, moving forward here, he's gonna list a number of ways the Father has blessed us in Christ. And the first thing that Paul praises God the Father for is for choosing us in Christ. From before the foundations of the world. Now, I, if you were paying attention, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse seven to nine. If you want to write that uh, in, in right here next to these verses, it's because we see the exact same rhythm, structure, and vocabulary used in both places, which is astonishing and beautiful. It, it's astonishing and beautiful. It's it's perplexing and wonderful. Because what we see here is that these Gentile Christians, as they are coming to faith in Jesus, they have the exact same thing said about them that Israel has said about them. Do you know how comforting that would have been? You're a Gentile, you're showing up in an all Jew church, and you're like, I don't belong here. And then you read this letter, and you're like, never mind, I do belong here. Praise God. And then some Jew that's really angry that's there and they're not a Christian yet. And they're just like, wait, what did you say? That Gentile over there, he doesn't have the same rights I do. I don't know why he has a British accent, but uh, he does for some reason. See, See, these Gentile Christians are not second class citizens in the same way that the Jews were chosen by God. They, by their faith in Christ, are united to Christ and they are the ones who are chosen by God. They're not God's plan B. Their salvation isn't an afterthought. God assured them, actually, that all of human history, all of redemptive history has been working to this exact moment when everything that is broken, sad, and untrue will be made right as God the Son will come in and restore our broken and fractured relationship with God the Father, with one another, with ourselves, and then with creation itself. We are being united to God through Christ. And so what, they, what we see here is, is that their salvation as Gentiles is owing to the exact same root as the election of Israel, is they are found in the plans and purposes of God, which is astonishing to think about as we're reading through the Bible. It, it, it might not seem bizarre to us, but for these Gentiles to enter into the same, the same promises of the Jews it's just scandalous, and it's meant to be. This is actually why we see the verb used here, he chose us. If you're an underliner or a circular, that phrase, he chose us, in the Greek, it means that God picked us. Those of us who are Christians, he chose us. In fact, the structure of the sentence demonstrates that it is a reflexive verb. I know last week I was teaching you an active adjective and now now a reflexive verb. I told you this was English class. And, and what, what a reflexive verb is, is it turns back on the one who chooses. So, so he chose, it points back to his initiative His doing, meaning our English text just makes it abundantly clear that it is God who chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't that just something that this whole, like, believing God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, isn't that, like, reformed or Calvinistic view of the Bible, to which I say, yeah, (laughs) emphatically it is, but it's also the Arminian view of what's happening right here too. Because all true Christians, when reading God's word, we both land at the same place here. There's no other way to translate this from the Greek into the English. It's just emphatically there. All Christians who believe in God's word and the authority and infallibility and errancy of God's word agree with that verse and we submit to it and believe it because God said it. Thus, we all agree, all Christians, that God chose us to be his people from before the foundations of the world were laid. So you might wonder, where do Christians disagree? I feel like there's a disagreement here. Where is the disagreement? And it comes to the question of why. Why did God choose us in Christ from before the foundations of the world? So some might look at this reflexive verb and they declare, God chose us because he looked all the way down the line into the future and he saw that you and I were gonna choose him so from before he did anything, he knew all that. So he said, I'm going to choose them, which is okay to view. That's a Christian view. Another view is that God maybe foresaw some mighty work or deed that you were going to choose to do. Do something. So he chose you. Maybe he needed you on his team. So he chose you. Those people are still Christians. They, they love and trust and believe upon the Bible. But I would argue that neither of those arguments makes sense in anything that we have read in the Old Testament at all. Like, did Moses have a choice? Israel, they have a choice. Joseph have a choice. King David have a choice. Solomon have a choice. All of a sudden we get in the New Testament and you're like, they had a choice. You're like, where did that come from? I don't know. But... You can look at the reflexive verb and said maybe there's a way. So, some people say that there is. I, however, would disagree with us because, with that because it is a reflexive verb. It reflects back on God. It doesn't look towards the object for any reason in the object why it was chosen, either foreseen faith or some good work. Rather, the verb doesn't look forward. It looks backward, onto the Lord. And, and unless you can convince me it's not a reflexive verb, which, I, which I, you can't, it's language. Like language just is. Like you you say, well, maybe it was, in, it was in an error. Well, can you show me the manuscript where there was that error? Like you're not gonna find it. And so for me, I'm, I'm very comfortable looking at how God has worked all of these things together in his word because I see something really beautiful in it. However, I do want to admit that the other two views make a lot of sense in our culture about how we choose to set our love on others. Doesn't it? Especially when it comes to marriage or friendship. But let me explain what I mean. Now, fellas, when you find that girl that you want to marry, I'll give you some good dating advice. If you're, if you're a single dude, listen up. You find that girl, you want to marry her. When you choose her, you're like, this is the girl I want to marry. When you choose her, typically are going to say 100% of the time. It's because you find her attractive. If you don't find her attractive, don't ask her to marry you. Uh, that's just good pastoral wisdom for you. Uh, but, but there's something in her that, that draws you to her. You find her attractive, you get infatuated with her. And so because she's lovely, you love her. So when you go to ask her to marry you, you might explain the reasons why you want to marry her is because you find her really intelligent and special. You take, your beauty is beyond compare. In fact, every other woman looks like a pile of, cow dung to me in comparison to you, my love. You are beautiful. And, and then you might talk about her character and how noble she is and how wonderful and how godly she is and, and how you want to grow old with her and you just want to drink coffee in the morning with her until your dying breath. And then you pop out that ring and you say, will you marry me? And then she says, Lord willing, yes. And thinking about that, you don't begin the conversation in asking a girl to marry you by saying this you know, there's nothing particularly attractive or beautiful in you that draws me to you. You're not particularly beautiful or intelligent. For that matter, your neck is a bit long and your breath always smells really bad. And your character, well, you're lacking for sure. However, against my better judgment, I've decided to set my love on you anyway. Now, ladies, if some guy proposes to you like that, Ladies, listen up. Some guy pros to you like that swift right hook, homeboy will drop, get out of dodge. Get out of there. Get out of there. Why? Because he doesn't find you precious and lovely. He doesn't desire you. Why would you want to marry someone like that? And so we take this idea of romantic love and we assume that God must be like that. Don't we? God chooses us because he finds something lovely in us that he just can't do without. Maybe he sees some work you'll do or, or how you'll do something wonderful or how faithful you'll be to him. And so he chooses you because you're lovely and, and noble. That's kind of how I pick flowers for my wife. I look at everything and I say, those are ugly and I, I like these. These is what, This is what I'm getting for her. So God must choose us like that. He chooses us because we're lovely. We think we're lovely. I think you're lovely. God does not necessarily look at us and, and think that. Because in the Bible we read the opposite is true. He, he never sets His love on us because we have earned it or deserved it. That's why it's called grace. That's why we use this word grace. What does the word grace mean? Undeserved and unearned. If there is something deservable or earnable in us, then we would deserve it or earn it. And, and yet God shows us grace. And and that's the mystery of God, isn't it? Because there's there's absolutely nothing lovely in us. There's nothing that he needs in us. There's, there's nothing that he's lacking. According to God's word, and this is a, this is a mystery. Zero idea. The, the Lord looks on people like you, people like me, and just says, he'll be mine. We hear someone share the gospel with us. For some reason, we... I think there is a God. I, I think that Jesus really did die on a cross for my sin. I, I think he rose from the dead. I, I, I want to give my life to him. Where's that come from? You're working or, or God's working in your life? Friends, in the Bible, we we have this view from Scripture that we, from birth and by nature, are dead in the trespasses and sins. From birth and by nature, we are people who worship the principle of the power of the air, Satan himself. We are those who also have a spirit of disobedience in our chest, leading us into all kinds of sin and that are carried out in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind are by nature children of wrath. Those who deserve God's eternal judgment to be poured out upon us for forever. We are blinded to the light of the gospel, unable to see it and unwilling to come even if we could see the light because we love the darkness and we want nothing to do with the light. For when we read the Bible, it's very clear that if we ever stood a shot before God of being accepted before him, it does not come from within us as people. It must come from God. He must be the one who does the wonderful work of saving us. Thus, his choice of us is to be in Christ. doesn't come from any good in us, but according to his sovereign grace and the foreordination of all things. Thus, he is the one to be praised for our salvation. Speaking of which, we've said this often, but isn't that exactly what we ask him to do in the lives of those around us who aren't Christians? When we're praying for them, what do we ask God to do in their life? Save them. Why do do you pray that? You ever think about that. Why, Why do you pray asking God to save them? It's because you realize that they cannot save themselves. This is what we believe as Christians. It's just even aid in how we even pray for people because we know. I, you ever you ever shared the gospel with someone and they just look at you just blank, just nothing. You're talking about the sweetness of Christ, the glory of God and the gospel and they just, nothing. And other times you, share, you open your mouth and you share with them and God just produces this miracle in their life and you're like, praise God. That's the natural reaction. We don't say, oh, I'm glad you did that. Good job, (laughs) pat you on the back. You did it, man. No, why? Supernaturally know as God's people that if anyone would be saved, it must be the very work of God in their life. Can, Can I could it be anything we say or do we try? We can try to persuade them, but we we have no ability. If there's no magic silver bullet, we just bam ugh, the gospel. We're so dependent on God in this. We're so dependent on God in our own lives in this. And all this leads us to profound worship and thankfulness as God's people. And we think even about our own salvation. It's almost too good for us to think through because we know, we know that love in relationships is maintained and earned. Right? Our spouses. We remember when, when they did not love us and how they fell in love with us and as we tried to woo them in relationship with us. But we wonder if they will ever leave, leave, ever leave or abandon us. Our kids, as wondrous as they are, they might grow up and rebel against us and want nothing to do with us and bitterly hate us. Our friends may abandon us. But God knows the evil depths of your heart and soul. He knows your worst thought your most terrible motivation, he knows everything about you. And he looks at you and says, you will be mine. I want to extend my love to you. I want you to know forgiveness and grace and kindness. You have people in your life that that know everything about you and still want to be around you? I don't. But praise be to God that he has so loved us in Christ to redeem us and set his love on us from before the foundation of the world. The next thing that Paul then begins to praise God for is the end goal to which God has chosen us. Namely, verse 5, he explains God has chosen us to the end that he would predestine us for adoption as sons through Christ. And adoption is this other beautiful word that just conjures up all kinds of wonderful images in our mind. The word adoption, it, it means something really crucial though, doesn't it? Specifically that there was a time when that individual was not part of your family. And so you went about the great work of uniting them to yourself. And adoption is one of the most precious things to me, thinking about the effort that the family goes through, raising money, choosing a place, getting a kid, going, paperwork, getting the kid, bringing the kid home, working with the government of Canada, working with all these things, got all the paperwork and all these things in, the heavy price that you have to pay in. Likewise, think about all that God has done for us through Christ to bring us to adoption to himself. And what a beautiful and glorious thought that that is. He has proposed to unite us to himself as sons and daughters. He's chosen us and to bring about his purposes and plans. He then sends God the Son, Jesus, to pay the price for our adoption so that we, who are God's enemies, might then be adopted into his family. Just like last week we saw in talking about Paul's apostleship being by the will of God, that it's this will of decree, God planned it and brought it into being. Likewise, we see that all of our salvation as Christians came about according to the purpose of God as he brought about our salvation. That he chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world that we may be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he's blessed us in the beloved. That's what God's praising, that Paul's praising God for, that our salvation is from God. He's the one who chose us, not because of what we brought to the table, but how we performed, no. But based on his love for us, that he set his love upon us and chose us from before we've done right or wrong, so that he is the one to be praised for our salvation, which has a couple of things in our lives. It humbles us. It means that that if you're a Christian, you didn't do anything to earn or deserve God's kindness to you. Isn't that a humbling thing? It also increases our affection and love and desire for him because we know that, that all these things are his great, kind gifts extended to us through Christ. And all this happens by grace, we see in verse six, to the praise of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We see as well in this that the word redeemed is used. Now, the word redeemed is slave vocabulary. It means that there was a price that needed to be paid so that we would be set free. If you imagine in some pirate movies or even the book Prince Caspian, we have this idea of slaves being put forward and auctioned off for labor. Likewise, this is where Christ found us. Friends, we were worthless, wretched, vile, rotten, darkened, hopeless, with minds that could never know God, hearts that never sought righteousness, and our desire was lust and evil all the time, and we were unworthy. And he came to us, and he bought us, and he gave us new hearts. He paid the price for us to be pardoned, to be freed, to be his own possession, but it wasn't a free cost. Rather, it was by his own blood. See, this is the wonderful doctrine of propitiation—that He stood condemned in our place. That was the cost of how He, who had chose us and who had predestined us for adoption, that's how He bought us. He redeemed us by the price of His own blood. The price of our redemption was death, one in the place of another, it, and, and thus to reconcile the people to Himself, to adopt us, this was the price. And he laid, so Jesus laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, was spat on, mocked, beaten, flogged, nailed to a cross, and died an excruciating death. So that your penalty for God the Father, the wrath of God that you deserve to pay, was paid. And then we are forgiven. The word forgiveness means to send away, never to return leading to one of the most wonderful truths imaginable for us as Christians, and it's this. Because of the substitutionary death of Jesus, him standing condemned in our place, this wonderful act appeased all of the wrath of God against our sins, meaning our sins have been paid for and we have been washed clean. He's expiated or blotted out and removed our sin from us. It's no wonder Micah, the great prophet from the Old Testament, said, who is a pardoning God like you? why Paul will go on to say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because as we sang at the beginning of our gathering, Jesus has paid it all. There's no penalty left to pay. All of this is according to the riches of God's grace. See, this mystery of God has just been unfolding throughout redemptive history, little glimpses of what God is doing. But now in Jesus, we see in verses nine, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, verse 10, for the fullness of all time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All of this is the great plan of God unfolding throughout the Bible. And now we see it fully in Christ. But the blessings of God don't stop there. Now, we look at verse 11. What we have seen is that we have attained an inheritance. Isn't that wild? Now, an inheritance, if Uh, as we know, uh, is either a benefit or a blessing, usually financially. Maybe it's land. Maybe it's something important that you don't earn. Rather, it's it's something that's given to us when someone dies, right? And they have your your name written down in their will before they die. They wrote the expressed desire for you to have this. So this is a beautiful word describing what's happened to us as Christians. As a result of the Father's choosing and the death of Christ, that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundations of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 21, 22 to 27. Thus, it's kind of like we're reading of the will as it unfolds the intentions of the individual. So before the foundations of the world, before this whole plan was set into motion, God had written your name in a book and he guaranteed your salvation to the praise of his grace. And he redeemed you and then forgave your sin in Christ. So now we are in Christ, heirs of the promise and having obtained this inheritance. That's where the beneficiaries of Christ's work so that his righteousness is now ours. And if we're wondering if that verse is still even for us, this whole thing, we read in verses 13 and 14 that that this is true of all people who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there, you and I. See, when we heard the gospel, someone opened up their lips and shared with us and we believed in Jesus. At that moment, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this word seal is, is important. I think about like old kings, they would you know put some ink stuff down with a ring. They're like, this is mine. And they send out something. That way when you get it, you know it's not a forgery. It's actually from the king. Likewise, God the Spirit is that for us. Or if you've been to MCC recently and you bought something, but it was too big for your car, put a little sticker with your name on it. You come back later and say, that was mine. That is what the spirit is for us. If you bought a house recently, last couple of years, you have to put a down payment—ten thousand, 20,000, a million thousand dollars, I don't know what, whatever it is now with interest rates. Uh, and, and as you do that, you are saying, "I am coming through on this. This is part of the money that's going towards my down payment, going towards the the house itself. But I'm putting it down here as the down payment. That this is this is going through." Likewise, God the Spirit given to us as Christians is that earnest of God, that we belong to him and that he will preserve us until the end. Which I love because here, Paul doesn't say that we need to pray and fast and seek God to plead with him, to ask him and beg him for God the Spirit to come to us. Nor do we see anywhere in scripture of Christians ever praying and asking God, to, uh, God the Spirit to come to them rather the, the pattern throughout scripture is that we are indwelt by god the spirit sealed by him as we hear the gospel and believe there's this weird bizarre thing within christianity right now where people think that there's this ancient prayer come holy spirit and it's this is really old prayer and Christians have been praying it for forever malarkey this is not in the bible this is not true we don't plead and ask god the spirit to come and do things as if he's like this magical force or essence that we have to beg god to come and do friends, if, if you are a Christian, you have been sealed by the Spirit. He's indwelling inside of you, empowering you for good works of ministry. As, as, the, as, the, as the very presence of God with you is a guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. Now, this whole section, as I said at the very beginning, is meant for us to praise God for all that he's done, extolling and worshiping praising him for all of the great grace and kindness that he's given to us. You and I who don't deserve it and could not earn it. And as we see three times in this passage, we see that everything in here is to the praise of his glory. Thus, It is right and, filled and fitting that we ought to spend time thanking God as Christians for these things. And not only that, but how often has your prayer life as a Christian been walking through something like this in Ephesians chapter one, verses three and 14, and just systematically walking through and praising and thanking God for everything that Paul does? Your prayer life usually look like that? I would imagine not. And yet there are wonderful things in this that you could spend the rest of this week Rest of this month, the rest of your life, walking through these verses in prayer to God, thanking him for the very same things that Paul does. And we see as well in this, don't we, that our salvation is a Trinitarian effort. God the Father planned and purposed it. God the Son, Jesus, purchases us by his blood. And God the Spirit seals us as the sign that we have been bought by Jesus, and that we belong to God. And for that, brothers and sisters, God alone is to be praised. Now, if, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you're checking out all this, Christianity stuff, you might wonder, well, what hope does any of this have for me? What what, what hope does this have? Like, it's kind of like listening to a love song when you're not in love, and you're like, I wish I was in love. Uh, And and you wonder, what what in this praise is is good for you to know? It's it's good for you to know that in and of your own self, you are not holy and blameless. Rather, God says, you are unholy and blameworthy. We see from this that you don't deserve to be adopted into God's family. Rather, you deserve to face the consequences of trespasses because you've not believed upon Jesus. The Bible explains that when we die, there's two options where we spend eternity future. We are either united to Jesus by faith, where we have repented of our sins and trusted on Jesus as our God, Savior, and King, or we spend eternity future suffering under the just judgment of God, the conscious torment of God for our many sins in a place called the lake of fire, which does not sound very good. This is in Revelation chapter 20, verses seven to 15. And it says there actually that, that those who are there will be tormented day and night forever and ever because of their sin against God. But God has made a way for you who deserve nothing but his judgment to receive grace and kindness and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for your many sins. See, God is merciful and and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's made a way for you who are guilty and unholy and blameworthy to be pardoned, declared holy, and declared blameless. But it's not by works that you do. Rather, it's by trusting in the finished work of Jesus in your place. That he suffered the death you ought to have died and died and rose from the dead, conquering over it. That he stood condemned in your place. Thus, thus, if if you would want to, have forgiveness of sins, then it is available for you today. And so the question is, would you come to Jesus? God is, God is not unmerciful and unkind. In fact, the very fact that you're here hearing this means that God is being very kind and gracious to you. And, and through my voice, he's calling you to come and trust and believe upon Jesus as your only hope in life and in death. And if you're here and you are a Christian, my encouragement for you this week is to spend time meditating on these verses. So let just slowly work through it in your mind, finding new ways to thank God for his great kindness extended to you. Thank God for choosing you from before the foundations of the world and praise him because you know how weak and insecure and fickle your own heart is. So be thankful that God's love for you isn't dependent on you choosing him but rather than on him choosing you. And thank him that he came and found you, that he is the one who predestined you unto adoption as a son or a daughter of God and that he put you into his family. You're not a second class Christian. doesn't matter what your background is doesn't matter if you're like, man, I got way more sins than everyone else here. You're not a second-class Christian. There's no such thing. Praise God for that. He put you into a church family. You once were dead in your sins and loved darkness instead of them. So because of that, we, we praise his glorious, undeserved grace extended to us. Brother and sister, God has redeemed you at a great cost by the blood of Christ that you might be united to him, that you might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he's given you his spirit as his guarantee that you are his. And right now you are in Christ. There are no better blessings or promises of God than that. Friends, we could spend a lifetime, we probably should, coming back and praising God for these things. So, Let's pray and and then we will do that.